Chapter Eight, Part Two of Nana by Emizola, translated by Burton Rasco. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Eight, Part Two. And he worked away for more than an hour, reflecting occasionally about a sentence, his head buried in his hands, and laughing to himself whenever he thought of some expression exceptionally tender. Nana had already taken two cups of tea in silence. At length he read the letter as they read on the stage, just making a few gestures. He wrote on five sides of paper about the delicious hours passed at La Mignotte, the memory of which would remain like subtle perfumes. He swore an eternal fidelity to that springtide of love, and ended in declaring that his sole desire was to recommence that happiness, if happiness can recommence again. You know, he explained, I say all that out of politeness. As it's only for fun, well, I think it'll do. He was delighted with himself, but Nana, still dreading a row, was foolish enough not to throw her arms round his neck and utter words of admiration. She thought the letter would do very well, but that was all. Then he was very much put out. If his letter did not please her, she could write another one, and instead of embracing each other, as they usually did after a great many protestations of love, they remained very cold on either side of the table. She had, however, poured him out a cup of tea. What muck! he cried as he wetted his lips with it. You have been putting salt into it. Nana unhappily shrugged her shoulders. He became furious. Ah, everything's going wrong this evening. And the quarrel started from that. It was only ten by the clock, so it was a way of killing time. He worked himself up. He flung all sorts of accusations at her, full of insults, without giving her time to answer them. She was dirty. She was idiotic. She had led a fine life. Then he raved about the money. Was he in the habit of spending six francs when he dined out? He had his dinners paid for. Otherwise he would have taken pot luck at home. And all for that old procurus maloir, too. An old hag whom he would pitch downstairs if she dared show herself there again. Ah, well, they would go far if every day they chucked six francs into the street in that style. First of all, cried he, I must have your accounts. Come, give me the money. Let me see how we stand now. All his miserly instincts were awakened. Nana, subdued and terrified, hastened to fetch the money that was left from the drawer and laid it out before him. Until then the key had been left in the lock and they had each taken what they needed. What? said he after counting. There are scarcely seven thousand francs remaining out of seventeen thousand, and we have only been living together for three months. It isn't possible. He rushed from his seat and turned out the drawer by the light of the lamp. But there were really only six thousand eight hundred and a few odd francs. Then the row became a regular storm. Ten thousand francs in three months, he bellowed. Damnation, what have you done with them, eh? Answer me. It all goes to your old hag of an aunt, eh? Or else you've been treating yourself. That's very clear. Answer me at once. Ah, you get in a passion instantly, said Nana. It's very easy to make up the account. You forget all the furniture. Then I was obliged to buy a lot of linen. Money soon goes when there is everything to buy. But though he demanded explanations, he would not listen to them. Yes, it goes a great deal too quickly, resumed he in a calmer tone of voice. And look here, young woman, I've had enough of this share and share alike business. These seven thousand francs, you know, are mine. 
Well, now I've got them, I intend to stick to them. As you're so wasteful as all that, I'll take care I'm not ruined. One has a right to one's own. And he magisterially put the money in his pocket, whilst Nana looked at him in amazement. Then he complacently continued, You understand, I'm not such a fool as to keep aunts and children who are not mine. It pleased you to spend your money, and that was your business. But mine is sacred. When you cook a leg of mutton, I'll pay half. Every night we'll settle up. On hearing this, Nana revolted. She could not restrain a cry. I say, that's disgusting. You had your share of my ten thousand francs. But he did not waste more time in discussion. Leaning across the table, he gave her a slap in the face with all his might, exclaiming, Say that again. She did so in spite of the slap, and then he fell upon her with kicks and blows. He soon put her into such a state that she ended as usual by undressing herself and going sobbing to bed. He puffed and blowed and was about to get into bed when he noticed the letter he had written for Georges lying on the table. Then he folded it up with care and turning towards the bed said menacingly, The letter will do very well. I will post it myself because I don't intend to put up with any caprices and don't whine for it annoys me. Nana, who was weeping bitterly, held her breath. When he got into bed, she felt as though choking, and throwing herself on his breast, sobbed aloud. Their battles always ended thus. She trembled at the thought of losing him. She felt a mean want of knowing he was all her own, in spite of everything. He twice pushed her away with a haughty gesture, but the warm embrace of the supplicating woman with her large, tearful eyes, resembling those of some faithful animal, kindled a flame of desire within him. And he acted the good prince without, however, stooping to make any advances. He let himself be caressed, and, so to say, taken by force, in the style of a man whose forgiveness is worth winning. Then he was seized with anxiety. He feared that Nana had only been acting a little comedy to get possession of the cash again. He had blown out the candle when he thought it necessary to assert once more his authority. You know, my girl, I meant what I said. I intend to keep the money. Nana, who was going to sleep with her arms round his neck, said sublimely, Yes, never fear. I will work. But from that evening their life together became worse than ever. From one end of the week to the other the sound of slaps could be heard, just like the tick-tick of a pendulum which seemed to regulate their existence. Nana, through being beaten so frequently, became as supple as fine linen, and it made her skin so delicate and so soft to the touch, her complexion so pink and white, so clear to the eye, that she was more beautiful than ever. And that was why Prullière was forever dangling about her skirts, calling when he knew Fontan would not be there, and pushing her up into corners and trying to kiss her. But she, at once becoming highly indignant, struggled and blushed with shame. She thought it disgusting of him to wish to deceive his friend. Then Prullière sneered with vexation. Really, she was becoming precious stupid. How could she stick to such a monkey? For Fontan was indeed a monkey, with his big nose forever on the move, a disgusting pig and a fellow, too, who was always knocking her about. That may be, but I love him as he is, she replied one day, in the cool way of a woman owning to some most revolting taste. Busk contented himself with dining there as often as possible. He shrugged his shoulders behind Prullière, a handsome fellow but not serious. He had often assisted at rows in the house. 
During dessert, when Fontan slapped Nana, he would continue chewing in a matter-of-fact way, thinking it the most natural thing in the world. By the way of paying for his dinners, he always pretended to be in raptures at the sight of their happiness. He proclaimed himself a philosopher. He had renounced everything, even glory. Prulière and Fontan, leaning back in their chairs, would sometimes forget themselves after the table had been cleared, and fall to relating their successes up to two o'clock in the morning with their stage voices and gestures, whilst he, wrapped in thought and only occasionally giving a little sniff of disdain, would silently finish the bottle of brandy. What was left of Talma? Nothing. Then they had better shut up and not make such fools of themselves. One night he found Nana in tears. She removed her bodice and showed him her back and arms covered with bruises. He looked at the skin, without being tempted to take advantage of the situation as that fool Prulière would have been. Then he sententiously observed, My child, wherever there are women, there are slaps. It was Napoleon who said that, I think. Bathe yourself with salt water. Salt water is excellent for such trifles. Take my word for it, you will receive a great many more, and do not complain so long as there is nothing broken. You know I shall invite myself to dinner. I noticed a leg of mutton. But Madame Lerat was not gifted with similar philosophy. Each time Nana showed her a fresh bruise on her white skin, she complained loudly. Her niece was being murdered. It could not last. The truth was, Fontan had turned Madame Lerat out and said that he would not have her in the place again. And ever since that day, if she happened to be there when he returned home, she was obliged to take her departure by way of the kitchen, which humiliated her immensely. And so she never ceased abusing that unmannerly person. With the airs of a most well-bred woman to whom no one could teach anything pertaining to a polite education, she reproached him with having been shockingly badly brought up. Oh, one can see that at a glance, she would say to Nana. He has no idea of even the slightest propriety. His mother must have been a very low woman. Don't deny it, he shows it only too plainly. I do not say it on my own account, although a person of my age has a right to a certain respect. But you, really now, how do you manage to put up with his bad manners? For without flattering myself, I always taught you how to behave yourself and in your own home you received the very best advice. We were all very respectable in our family, were we not? Nana did not protest. She listened with her head bowed down. Then, continued the aunt, you have only been acquainted with well-to-do people. We were just talking about it last night at home with Zoe. She can't understand either why you put up with all this. How, said she, can madame, who could do just as she pleased with the count, for between ourselves you appear to have treated him as though he were a donkey, how can madame allow herself to be massacred by that ugly clown? I added that slaps might even be born, but that I would never have submitted to such a want of respect. In short, he has nothing whatever in his favor. I wouldn't have his portrait in my room on any account. And you are ruining yourself for such a sorry bird as he is. Yes, you are ruining yourself, my darling. You are going about in want of everything, when there are so many others, and far richer ones too, and gentlemen connected with the government. But that's enough. It's not I who ought to tell you all this. 
However, were I in your place, the very next time he treated me ill, I'd leave him to himself, with a, sir, whom do you take me for, said in your grand style, you know, which would show him you were not going to be made a fool of any longer. Then Nana burst into tears and sobbed. Oh, aunt, I love him. The truth was Madame Lerat was feeling very anxious, seeing that it was only with the greatest difficulty that her niece managed to give her a twenty-sous piece at distant intervals, to pay for little Louis's board. Of course, she would do her utmost, she would keep the child all the same and wait for better times. But the idea that it was Fontan who was the cause why she, the child and its mother, were not rolling in wealth enraged her to such a pitch that she denied the existence of love. Accordingly, she concluded with these harsh words, Listen. One day, when he has skinned you alive, you will come and knock at my door, and I will let you in. The want of funds soon became Nana's great care. The seven thousand francs Fontan had taken had quite disappeared. No doubt he had put them in some safe place, and she did not dare question him, for she was very timid with that sorry bird as Madame Lerat styled him. She trembled lest he should think her capable of sticking to him for the sake of his money. He had promised to give something towards the housekeeping expenses, and he started by giving three francs every morning. But he expected all sorts of things for his money. He wanted everything from his three francs. Butter, meat, early fruit and vegetables. And, if she hazarded an observation, if she insinuated that it was impossible to purchase all in the market for three twenty-sous pieces, he fumed. He called her a good-for-nothing, an extravagant hussy a stupid fool whom the market people robbed and invariably wound up by threatening to get his meals elsewhere. Then, after the expiration of a month, on some mornings he would forget to leave the three francs on the top of the chest of drawers. She ventured to ask him for them timidly, in a roundabout way, but this had occasioned such quarrels. He made her life so miserable on the first pretext he could get hold of that she preferred no longer to count on him. Whenever he had not left the money and found all the same a good dinner ready for him, he was as gay as a lark and most amiable, embracing Nana and waltzing about the room with the chairs. And this made her so happy that she reached the point of wishing not to find anything on the drawers, in spite of the difficulty she had in making both ends meet. One morning, even, she returned him his three francs, telling him a long rigmarole about having some money left from the previous day. As he had given nothing for two days, he hesitated for a moment, fearing a lesson. But she looked at him with her eyes overflowing with love. She embraced him with a complete abandonment of her whole person. And he put the money back into his pocket with the slight convulsive trepidation of a miser recovering an amount that had been in danger. From that day he ceased to trouble himself, never asking where the money came from, looking very black when there were only potatoes, and laughing fit to dislocate his jaws on beholding a turkey or a leg of mutton. Without prejudice, however, to sundry cuffs with which he favoured Nana, even in his happiest moments, just to keep his hand in training. Nana had therefore found means of supplying everything. On certain days the house was glutted with food. Busk feasted there so sumptuously twice a week that he suffered from indigestion. One evening, as Madame Lerat was leaving, angry at seeing before the fire an abundant dinner of which she was not to partake, she could not resist bluntly asking who it was who paid for it. Nana, taken by surprise, no longer knew what she was about and began to cry. "'Well, it's a nice state of things,' said the aunt who understood. Nana had resigned herself for the sake of peace and quietness in her home. 
It was partly, too, the fault of Autricon, whom she had met in the Rue de Laval one day when Fontan had gone off in a fury because there had been nothing but salt cod for dinner. So she had said yes to Autricon, who happened to be in a difficulty. After that, as Fontan never came home before six in the evening, she was able to dispose of her afternoons, and often brought back as much as forty or sixty francs, and sometimes more. She might have made as much as ten and fifteen louis had she been entirely free, but still she was very glad to get enough to keep things going. At night-time she forgot all, when Busque was almost bursting with food, and Fontan, with his elbows on the table, let her kiss his eyes with the self-satisfied air of a man who is loved for himself alone. Then, whilst adoring her darling, her dear love, with a passion all the more blinding as it was she who now paid for all, Nana reverted again to the depravity of her early days. She walked the streets as she did when a young girl in quest of a five-francs piece. One Sunday at the Rochefoucauld market, she made it up with Satin after flying at her and bullying her on account of Madame Robert. But Satin merely replied that when one did not like a thing, one had no right to seek to disgust others with it. And Nana, who was by no means narrow-minded, yielded to the philosophical idea that one never knows how one may end, and forgave her. And her curiosity being awakened, she even questioned her in regard to some details of vice, amazed at learning something fresh at her age, after all she knew. She laughed and thought it very funny, yet feeling all the time a slight repugnance, for at heart she was rather conservative in her habits. She often went to Laws when Fontan dined out. She was amused with the stories she heard there, with the loves and the jealousies which had so much interest for the other customers, though they never caused them to lose a mouthful. However, she was never mixed up with them, as she said. Stout Law, with her maternal affection, often invited her to spend a few days at her villa at Asnières, a country house where there were rooms for seven ladies. She declined. She was afraid. But Satin, having declared to her that she was mistaken, that gentlemen from Paris would swing them and play at different games in the garden with them, she promised to come later on, as soon as she was able to get away. At that time Nana was very worried and was not much inclined for a spree. She was greatly in want of money. When old Tricon had nothing for her, and that occurred only too often, she did not know whom to go to. Then she would wander about with satin all over Paris, amidst that degrading vice which prowls along the muddy by-streets, beneath the dim glimmer of the gas-lamps. Nana returned to the low dancing places of the barriers, where she had first learned to hop about with her dirty skirts. She once more beheld the dark corners of the outer boulevards, the posts against which men used to kiss her when she was only fifteen years old, whilst her father was seeking her to give her a hiding. They both hastened along, visiting all the balls and the cafés of a locality, crawling upstairs wet with saliva and spilt beer. Or else they walked slowly, following street after street, and standing up every now and then in the doorways. Satin, who had first appeared in the Quartier Latin, took Nana there, to Bullier's, and to the cafés of the Boulevard Saint-Michel. But it was vacation time, and the quarter was almost deserted, so they returned to the principal boulevards. It was there that they met with most luck. From the heights of Montmartre to the plateau where the observatory was situated, they thus rambled about the entire city. Rainy nights when their shoes would become trodden down at heel, warm nights which made their clothes adhere to their skin, long waits and endless wanderings, jostlings and quarrels, brutal abuse from a passer-by enticed into some obscure lodging, down the dirty stairs of which he retired swearing. The summer was drawing to a close a stormy summer with sultry nights. 
they would start off together after dinner, about nine o'clock. Along the pavements of the Rue Notre-Dame-de-Lorette, two lines of women, keeping close to the shops, holding up their skirts, their noses pointing to the ground, might be seen hastening towards the boulevards, without bestowing a glance on the displays in the windows, and looking as though they had some most important business on hand. It was the famished onslaught of the Breda quarter, which commenced with the first glimmer of the gaslight. Nana and Satin passed close to the church and always went along the Rue Le Pelletier. Then, at a hundred yards from the Café Riche, having reached the exercising ground, they would let fall the trains of their dresses, which until that moment they had carefully held in their hands, and after then, regardless of the dust, sweeping the pavement and swinging their bodies, they would walk slowly along, moving slower still whenever they came into the flood of light of some large café holding their heads high, laughing loudly, and looking back after the men who turned to glance at them, they were in their element. Their whitened faces, spotted with the red of their lips and the black of their eyelashes, assumed in the shadow the disturbing charm of some imitation eastern bazaar held in the open street. Until twelve o'clock, in spite of the jostling of the crowd, they promenaded gaily along, merely muttering, stupid fool, now and again, behind the backs of the awkward fellows whose heels caught in their flounces. They exchanged familiar nods with the café waiters, lingered sometimes to talk at the tables, accepting drinks which they swallowed slowly, like persons happy at having the chance to sit down while waiting till the people came out of the theatres. But, as the night advanced, if they had not made one or two trips to the rue La Rochefoucauld, their pursuit became more eager, they no longer picked and chose. Beneath the trees of the now gloomy and almost deserted boulevards, ferocious bargains were made, and occasionally the sound of oaths and blows would be heard, whilst fathers of families with their wives and daughters used to such encounters would pass sedately by without hastening their footsteps. Then, after having made the tour ten times from the opera to the gymnase theatre, finding that the men avoided them and hurried along all the faster in the increasing obscurity, Nana and Satin would adjourn to the Rue du Faubourg Montmartre, there, up till two o'clock in the morning, the lights of the restaurants, of the beer saloons, and of the pork butchers blazed away, whilst quite a swarm of women hung about the doors of the cafés. It was the last bright and animated corner of nocturnal Paris, the last open market for the contracts of a night, where business was overtly transacted among the various groups from one end of the street to the other, the same as in the spacious hall of some public building. And on the nights when they returned home unsuccessful, they wrangled with each other. The rue Notre-Dame-de-Lorette appeared dark and deserted, with only the occasional shadow of some woman dragging herself along. It was the tardy return of the poor girls of the neighborhood, exasperated by an evening of forced idleness, and pertinaciously striving for better luck as they argued in a hoarse voice with some drunkard who had lost his way, and whom they detained at the corner of the rue Breda or the rue Fontaine. However, they occasionally had some very good windfalls. Louis given them by well-dressed gentlemen, who put their decorations in their pockets as they accompanied them. Satin especially scented them from afar. On wet nights, when dank Paris emitted the unsavory smell of a vast alcove seldom cleansed, she knew that the dampness of the atmosphere, the fetidness of the low haunts, excited the men. And she watched for those that were the best off. She could see it in their pale eyes. It was like a stroke of carnal madness passing over the city. It is true that she was at times rather frightened, for she knew that the most gentlemanly-looking men were generally the most filthy-minded. All the polish vanished and the brute appeared beneath, exacting in his monstrous taste and refined in his perversion. 
so Satin, therefore, had no respect for the great people in their carriages, but would say that their coachmen were far nicer, for they treated women as they should be treated, and did not half kill them with ideas worthy of hell. This fall of well-to-do people into the crapulence of vice still astonished Nana, who had reserved certain prejudices of which Satin relieved her. When seriously discussing the subject, she would ask, Was there then no virtue? From the highest to the lowest, all seemed to grovel in vice. Well, there were some pretty doings in Paris from nine in the evening till three in the morning, and then she would laugh aloud and exclaim that if one were only able to look into all the rooms, one would witness some very queer things. The lower classes going in for a regular treat, and here and there not a few of the upper classes poking their noses even more than the others into the beastly goings-on. She was completing her education. One night, on calling for satin, she recognized the Marquis de Choix coming down the stairs, leaning heavily on the balustrade, his legs yielding beneath him and his face ghastly pale. She took out her handkerchief and pretended to blow her nose. Then, when she found satin surrounded by the accustomed filth, the room not having been touched for more than a week past, basins and other utensils lying about on all sides, the bed in a most dirty condition, she expressed her astonishment that her friend should know the Marquis. Ah, yes, she knew him. In fact, he had been an awful nuisance when she and her pastry-cook were living together. Now he came from time to time. But he pestered her immensely. He sniffed about in every dirty place he could find, even in her slippers. Yes, my dear, in my slippers. Oh, he's a filthy beast. He's always wanting things. What most troubled Nana was the sincerity of these low debaucheries. She recalled to mind her comedies of pleasure during the days of her fast life, whilst she saw the girls about her losing their health at it day by day. Then Satin frightened her terribly with the police. She was full of stories about them. Once she used to keep up an acquaintance with one of the inspectors of public morals so as to ensure being left alone. On two occasions he had prevented her name from being entered in their books, and now she trembled, for she knew what to expect if they caught her a third time. It was shocking to hear her. The police arrested as many women as they possibly could in order to get bribes. They seized all they came across, and silenced you with a slap in the mouth if you cried out, for they were certain of being upheld and rewarded, even though there happened to be a respectable girl among the number. In the summer they would start off twelve or fifteen together, and make a round-up on the boulevards surrounding one of the footpaths, and securing as many as thirty women in an evening. Satin, however, knew their favorite spots. As soon as ever she caught a glimpse of a policeman, away she bolted, amidst the wild flight of the long trains, through the crowd. There was a dread of the law, a terror of the prefecture of police so great that many remained as though paralyzed at the doors of the cafés, in spite of the advancing policemen who swept the road before them. But Satin most dreaded being informed against. Her pastry-cook had been mean enough to threaten to denounce her when he left her, Yes, some men lived on their mistresses by those means, without counting the dirty woman who would betray you through jealousy if you were better looking than they. Nana listened to all these stories which greatly increased her fears. She had always trembled at the name of the law, that unknown power, that vengeance of men which could suppress her without anyone in the world defending her. The prison of Saint-Lazare appeared to her like a tomb, an enormous black hole in which women were buried alive after having had their hair cut off. She would say to herself that she had only to give up Fontan to find no end of protectors, 
and Satin might tell her hundreds of times of certain lists of women, accompanied by their photographs, that the policeman had to consult and be careful never to interfere with the originals. She was nevertheless dreadfully frightened. She was always seeing herself jostled and dragged off to be inspected on the morrow, and the idea of the inspection filled her with agony and shame, she who had so often thrown her chemise over the housetops. It so happened that one night towards the end of September, as she was walking with Satin along the boulevard Poissonniere, the latter suddenly started off at full gallop. And as she asked her why she did so, The police, panted her friend. Hurry up! Hurry up! There was a headlong rush through the crowd. Skirts were torn in their flight. There were blows and cries. A woman fell to the ground. The mob laughingly looked on at the brutal onslaught of the police who rapidly contracted their circle. Nana, however, had soon lost sight of Satin. She felt her legs failing her. She was on the point of being caught when a man, taking her arm in his, led her off in the face of the infuriated policeman. It was Prullière, who had just at that moment recognized her. Without speaking, he turned with her down the rue Rougemont, which was almost deserted where she was able to take breath. But she felt so faint that he had to support her. She did not even thank him. Well, said he at length, you had better come round to my place and rest yourself a bit. He lived close by in the Rue Bergère. But she pulled herself together at once. No, I won't. But everyone does, he roughly resumed. Why won't you? Because. To her mind, that said everything. She loved Fontan too much to deceive him with a friend. The others did not count, as it was from necessity and not pleasure that she listened to them. In the face of such stupid obstinacy, Prullière behaved with the meanness of a handsome man wounded in his pride. "'Well, please yourself,' said he. "'Only I'm not going your way, my dear. Get out of the mess by yourself.' And he walked off. All her fright came back again. She returned to Montmartre by a most roundabout way, keeping close to the shops and turning pale every time a man came near her. It was on the morrow that Nana, still feeling the shock of her terrors of the night before, suddenly found herself face to face with La Bordette in a quiet little street at Batignolles as she was on her way to her aunt's. At first they both seemed rather uneasy. He, though always most obliging, had some business which he kept to himself. However, he was the first to regain his composure and express his pleasure at the meeting. Really, everyone was still amazed at Nana's total eclipse. She was inquired after everywhere. Her old friends were all pining away, and becoming paternal, he preached her a little sermon. Now, frankly, my dear, between ourselves, you are making a fool of yourself. One can understand a bit of infatuation, but not being reduced to the point you are, to be eaten up to that extent, and then only to pocket kicks and blows. Are you going in for the prize of virtue? She listened to him in an embarrassed manner. But when he spoke to her of Rose, who was triumphing with her conquest of Count Muffat, her eyes sparkled. She murmured, Oh, if I choose. He at once offered his mediation in his obliging way. But she refused. Then he attacked her on another subject. He told her that Bordenave was going to bring out a new piece by Faucherie, in which there was a capital part that would suit her splendidly. What? A new piece with a part that would suit me? she exclaimed in amazement, but he is in it, and he never told me. She did not name Fontan. Besides, she became calm again almost directly. She would never return to the stage. No doubt La Bordette was not convinced, for he insisted with a smile. 
You know you have nothing to fear with me. I will prepare Mifa, you will return to the theatre, and then I will lead him to you like a lamb. No, said she energetically, and she left him. Her heroism caused her to bemoan her fate. A cat of a man would not have sacrificed himself like that without trumpeting it abroad. Yet one thing struck her. La Bordette had given her exactly the same advice as Francis. That evening, when Fontan returned home, she questioned him about Faucherie's piece. He had been back at the Variety Theatre for two months past. Why had he not told her about the part? What part? asked he in his cross voice. Do you happen to mean the part of the grand lady? Really now, do you think then yourself a genius? But, my girl, you could no more play that part than fly. Upon my word, you make me laugh. Her feelings were dreadfully hurt. All night he chaffed her, calling her Mademoiselle Mars, and the more he ridiculed her, the more she stood up for herself, feeling a strange pleasure in that heroic defense of her whim, which in her own eyes made her appear very great and very loving. Ever since she had been consorting with other men for the purpose of feeding him, she loved him the more, in spite of all the fatigue and the loathing which this existence caused her. He became her vice for which she paid, and which beneath the sting of the blow she could not do without. He, seeing her as loving and obedient as an animal, ended by abusing his power. She irritated his nerves. He became seized with a ferocious hatred to such an extent that he lost sight altogether of his own interests. Whenever Busk made an observation on the subject, he exclaimed, exasperated without anyone knowing why, that he did not care a curse for her or her good dinners, and that he would turn her out of the place just for the sake of spending the seven thousand francs on another woman. And that was indeed the end of their intimacy. One night, Nana, on coming home about eleven o'clock, found the door bolted on the inside. She knocked a first time, no answer. A second time, still no answer. Yet she could see a light under the door, and Fontan was walking about inside. She knocked again and again without ceasing, and calling to him angrily. At length, Fontan said in a slow, thick voice, Go to the devil. She knocked with both her fists. Go to the devil. She knocked louder, almost enough to break the panel. Go to the devil. And for a quarter of an hour the same words answered her like a jeering echo of the blows she hammered on the door. Then, seeing that she did not tire, he suddenly opened it, and, standing on the threshold, with his arms crossed, said in the same cold, brutal tone of voice, Damnation, have you nearly done? What is it you want? You had better let us go to sleep. You can see very well that I am not alone. And true enough, he was not alone. Nana caught a glimpse of the little woman of the Bouff Theatre, already in her nightdress, with her curly hair that looked like tow, and her eyes like gimlet holes, who was enjoying the fun in the midst of the furniture that Nana had paid for. Fontan stepped out onto the landing, looking terrible, and opening his big finger, said, Be off, or I'll strangle you. Then Nana burst into nervous sobs. She was frightened and ran off. This time it was she who was turned out. In her anger she suddenly thought of Mifa and of how she had treated him. But really, it was not for Fontan to avenge him. Outside, her first idea was to go and sleep with Satin if no one else was with her. She met her outside her house, she having also been chucked out but by her landlord, who had put a padlock on her door against all legal right as the furniture was hers. 
sat and cursed and swore and talked of having him up before the commissary of police. However, as midnight was striking, the first thing to do was to obtain a bed somewhere. And Satin, thinking it best not to make the policeman acquainted with the state of her affairs, ended by taking Nana to a lady who kept a licensed lodging-house in the Rue de Laval. They obtained a small back room on the first floor overlooking the courtyard. "'I might have gone to Madame Robert's,' said Satin. "'There is always room there for me. But I couldn't have taken you. She's becoming most ridiculously jealous. The other night she beat me.' When they had fastened themselves in, Nana, who up till then had not unbosomed herself, burst into tears and related again and again the dirty trick that Fontan had played her. She listened complacently, consoled her, and became even more indignant than she, abusing the men heartily. Oh, the pigs! Oh, the pigs! You should have nothing more to do with such pigs. Then she helped Nana to undress. She hovered around her like a gentle and obliging little woman and kept saying coaxingly, Let's get into bed, quickly, my dear. We shall be much better there. Ah, how silly you are to be worried. I tell you that they're a foul set. Don't think of them any more. You know I love you very much. Now leave off crying. Do, for your little darling's sake. And in bed she at once took Nana in her arms so as to calm her. She would not hear Fontaine's name mentioned again. Each time that it came to her friend's lips she stopped it with a kiss prettily pouting with anger, her hair all loose and looking childingly beautiful and full of tenderness. Then, little by little, in this sweet embrace, Nana dried her tears. She was touched. She returned Satin's caresses. When two o'clock struck, the light was still burning. Both were laughing gently and uttering words of love. But suddenly a great noise was heard in the house. Satin, half-naked, jumped out of bed and listened. The police! said she, pale with fear. Ah, damn it, we've no luck. We're done for. She had told of the searches the policemen made in the hotels and lodging-houses fully twenty times, and yet, when they went to the Rue de Laval that night, they had neither of them given the matter a thought. At the word police, Nana lost her wits entirely. She jumped out of bed and, running across the room, opened the window with the wild look of a madwoman about to jump out. But fortunately the little courtyard was covered with glass, and over this was a wire network on a level with the window. She did not hesitate, but stepping on to the sill disappeared in the darkness, her chemise blowing about her, and her bare legs exposed to the keen night air. "'Stay here!' cried Satin, terrified. "'You will kill yourself!' Then, as they were knocking at the door, she good-naturedly closed the window and threw her friend's clothes into the bottom of a cupboard. She had already resigned herself to her fate, saying to herself that, after all, if they did put her on their list, she would no more have occasion for that stupid fright. She pretended to be sound asleep, yawned, parlayed, and ended by opening the door to a big fellow with a dirty beard who said, "'Show your hands. You've no needle-marks on your fingers. You don't work. Come, dress yourself.' "'But I'm not a needlewoman. I'm a burnisher,' declared Satin boldly. But all the same she quietly dressed herself, for she knew that it was no use arguing. Cries were heard about the house. One girl held on to the door, refusing to move. Another, who was in bed with her lover and for whom he became responsible, acted the part of the grossly insulted respectable woman, and threatened to take proceedings against the prefect of police. For nearly an hour there was a noise of heavy boots on the stairs, 
of doors shaken by violent blows, of piercing shrieks ending in sobs, of women's skirts grazing the walls, all the abrupt awakening and the terrified departure of a flock of women, brutally collared by three policemen under the charge of a little fair-haired and very polite commissary of police. Then a great silence reigned throughout the house. No one had betrayed her. Nana was saved. She crept back into the room, shivering and almost dead with fright. Her bare feet were bleeding from the scratches caused by the wire. For a long while she remained listening, seated on the edge of the bed. Towards morning, however, she fell asleep. But at eight o'clock, when she awoke, she quickly left the house and hastened to her aunt's. When Madame Lerat, who happened to be just taking her breakfast with Zoe, saw her at that early hour, dressed in such a slovenly way, and with a scared look about her face, she understood it at once. "'Ah, so it's happened, has it?' she exclaimed. "'I told you he would even want the skin of your body. "'Well, come in. You're always welcome here.' Zoe had risen and murmured with respectful familiarity. "'At length, Madame is restored to us.' I was expecting Madame. But Madame Lerat wished Nana to kiss little Louis at once, because, said she, the child's happiness consisted in his mother's good sense. Little Louis was still sleeping, looking sickly through lack of blood, and when Nana leant over his white, scrofulous face, all her troubles of the last few months returned to her and seemed to stick in her throat and almost strangle her. Oh, my poor little one! My poor little one! she stuttered in a last outburst of sobs. End of chapter 8